Hello, and welcome to the Tea Leaves podcast, where our goal is to bring Asia to you through conversations with the people whose lives and work are shaping the Indo-Pacific region. So what happens when policymakers and regulators are confronted with new technology? They're often lost. They often do not know how to regulate, what to regulate, whether to regulate or not, because very often we don't need regulation. So I think to, to create that bridge between the startup ecosystem, new technologies, innovation that is coming in, as well as regulation and policy making, it's very critical that you have a trusted advisor to policymakers, to regulators who can help them understand these new technologies, help them understand these sectors, educate them on the impact that some of these technologies are having on livelihoods, become that bridge between industry and government or industry and policymakers, and most important than not, sometimes even help align the vision of founders with that of the government. Allowing Indian startups to list on overseas exchanges. In fact, uh, uh, you know, this has been one of my top policy priorities after I took over, and we've been engaging very actively with the government, uh, trying to help policymakers understand why this is so crucial for companies that are reaching a certain stage of maturity to have the flexibility to choose where they'd like to list. It is exactly the opportunity that many counterparts uh, of startups in India have in other countries. So when when there are other countries that allow the option to list on overseas exchanges, why is it that Indian companies that come with so much entrepreneurial zeal, that have so much scope for growth and can achieve the kind of status that we've seen large tech companies globally achieve are not given that opportunity? I'm Rexon Yu, Managing Partner at the Asia Group. My co-pilot, Sherry Ahn, Bloomberg anchor, is off this week and will be back with us in our next episode. Today, we are pleased to welcome to Tea Leaves Shweta Rajbalkoli, Chief Public Policy Officer for Sequoia Capital in India and Southeast Asia. Sequoia is one of the world's leading venture capital funds, and Shweta advises the fund's Indian and Southeast Asian portfolio companies on regulatory risk and engages policymakers on matters related to India's startup ecosystem. Before joining Sequoia, Shweta was head of public policy for Indian South Asia at Uber and then at Salesforce. And both of those positions follow a two-decade career as a leading business journalist and TV news anchor. Shweta, thank you so much for joining us. It's terrific to have you here, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on the Tea Leaves podcast. Shweta, maybe we'll start with just uh, set the table and ask you to give us the picture of Sequoia India. When did it start? When was it founded? What does it look like today? How many portfolio companies? Give, give us a sense of what Sequoia India looks like. Absolutely, Rexon. So Sequoia has been uh, in India, Southeast Asia for 15 years now, and it's been an absolutely fascinating journey. As you can see, Sequoia having partnered with now close to about 250 plus companies, uh, largely in the tech sector, but across the tech sector, whether you name a vertical like fintech, health tech, edtech, and some of the most successful companies uh, in these areas uh, have been uh, our partners and, and companies where Sequoia has helped uh, them grow from idea 
to IPO stage. So tons of company building that has gone on over the last 15 years. And the success of that is very, very evident in the kind of growth that you're seeing with these companies. What's also interesting is that these partnerships are now, especially with our uh, uh, seed stage program surge happening across the, the spectrum. So very early stage companies, as well as companies that have attained, attained a certain stage of maturity and need that acceleration of growth. So Sequoia's had the opportunity, Sequoia India, in partnering with many of these companies across the board. So close to 250 companies in the portfolio. But what's even more fascinating is that we have about 20 unicorns in the portfolio, perhaps a, a, a testimony to the kind of growth that we're seeing in the India-Southeast Asia region that has become a hotbed for innovation, a hotbed for new emerging technologies, tons of ideas, job creation, as well as livelihood creation that we're very, very excited to be a part of. It's fascinating. And I, I've looked through the range of portfolio companies. Give us a sense of where your emphasis is today in terms of different technology sectors. Where's the vibrancy, the activity? And if you were to project forward, what's on the horizon? Well, I think Sequoia has been very fortunate to have partnered with companies across the landscape when it comes to the startup ecosystem, specifically focusing on technology and emerging technologies. And I thought if I were to identify the sectors that are seeing the most excitement, the most amount of growth, vibrancy, as well as innovation, I think let's start by talking about fintech, because fintech is one sector which, particularly in India, has seen tremendous amount of growth riding a lot on the kind of guardrails that the government had put in place, whether it is demonetization or UPI. Uh, we've seen a number of initiatives that have helped the digital payment ecosystem in India become perhaps one of the most innovative and one of the most advanced in the world. So riding on all of that, there are tons of fintech companies uh, that Sequoia has partnered with here in India. And uh, that apart now, the other sectors that I'd like to talk about are, in fact, edtech. Now, edtech in mm -hmm. many ways is one sector which is positioning India as, as a global powerhouse. You know, we're fortunate to have partnered with companies like Baiju's and Unacademy that are not only unicorns, but are becoming globally successful companies, expanding their global footprint. And these are companies that are that have been legendary in ways that they have really, in, in some ways, disrupted this entire ecosystem, disrupted the edtech market. And uh, today it's making the world sit up and take notice of India as the edtech capital of the world. And, and not just some of these companies, there are many other companies within this space, within the edtech space, that are doing remarkable, innovative uh, work. Uh, that apart now, health tech is another emerging sector, which we believe will continue to drive our focus. And that's primarily because, of course, led by the pandemic, but even otherwise, it's yes. one sector that benefits tremendously by way of emerging technologies. Some of the other sectors, of course, uh, include agri-tech, because uh, just the amount that technology can impact a sector like agri is evident from the kind of innovation that we're seeing across the agri-tech sector. One other exciting opportunity that we believe uh, where we've seen tremendous success and tremendous innovation coming in is SME digitization, the small and mm -hmm. medium sector that is clearly benefiting from digital technologies, companies that are there in our portfolio, like Katabook, Pagarbook, that are actually digitizing the entire MSME sector, 
helping this sector to take advantage of the kind of digital revolution that we're seeing in India. And lastly, I'll point to one other trend which we feel is very evident in India. And it's a trend which is India to the world, which is the SaaS sector mm-hmm. or the mm-hmm. software as a services sector, where we're seeing so many companies that are building for the world. So this is your India for the world story that that is continuing to grow and that's continuing to see tremendous success. When you joined Sequoia just about a year ago, if, if my math is correct, um, you assumed a new position, the chief That's public right. policy officer position. I would say a bit unusual, but I think very logical and sensible from my perspective. And you've touched a little bit on this intersection in several of the sectors you mentioned between the growth and dramatic uh, impact, the disruption in these sectors and the nexus with government and and regulation. Talk a little bit about the theory behind your role, what you first confronted when you joined, and where your priorities are in your engagements with the Indian government today. All very interesting and exciting questions there, Rexon. I think first to talk about the role and the position. Yes, it was rather, I would say, unusual or rather interesting to see a venture capital firm that would be keen on doing public policy. But 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 it seems very logical and sensible because, as you yourself said, I think we know for a fact that innovation always precedes regulation. And that's mm-hmm. exactly the case when it comes to the tech sector, because you're just seeing so many innovative technologies, so many emerging technologies come to the fore. And with that, there are businesses riding on it. There are businesses that are benefiting from, from new trends and policies. Now, what this requires really is a very healthy mix of both regulation as well as innovation coming together in a balancing act. So what happens when policymakers and regulators are confronted with new technology, they're often lost. They often do not know how to regulate, what to regulate, whether to regulate or not, because very often we don't need regulation. So I think to to create that bridge between the startup ecosystem, new technologies, innovation that is coming in, as well as regulation and policymaking, it's very critical that you have a trusted advisor to policymakers, to regulators who can help them understand these new technologies, help them understand these sectors, educate them on the impact that some of these technologies are having on livelihoods, become that bridge between industry and government or industry and policymakers, and most important than not, sometimes even help align the vision of founders with that of the government. And I think that to me has been the most exciting part of this role, because uh, not only does it bring with it a lot of depth, a lot of uh, breadth of things that you can do. But I think what's been most exciting is helping governments, helping policymakers, helping regulators understand that impact of technology, helping them come up with sensible policies, with progressive policies that create that balance between the concerns that policymakers have, because very often we forget that, yes, regulation comes in because governments have a job to do, they have certain concerns, and also balance the interests of the industry that we're seeing innovation flourish, and and nothing should come in the way of, of growth, of innovation, of creativity that we see in the startup ecosystem. So I would say uh, the role was fairly exciting because it allowed me to, it's allowing me to engage with governments and policymakers and regulators to enable them to understand some of these sectors better. For instance, let me me talk about new technologies like mobile gaming. Now that's Mm -hmm. a fascinating new sector, digital gaming, where you're seeing tons of innovation come in 
tremendous growth come in. Now, it's a sector that also brings with it some worries and concerns on part of the regulators because they rightly want to also regulate the sector. But on one hand, you've got, for instance, India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi talking about India becoming a digital gaming hub and the opportunities that the sector brings with it. But on the other hand, uh, because this is a state-regulated subject, you have states in India that are going ahead and banning uh, digital gaming. So there is that obvious disconnect that we need to and, and, and I think public policy can play that role in, in bridging that gap in helping understand and helping policymakers arrive at the right answers. You mentioned fintech first in terms of the industries at the top of our conversation. What are the main pain points, friction points that you're grappling with on behalf of your portfolio companies with the Indian government in this space? Interesting because uh, we do know that there are tons of regulators across the fintech sector. You know, there is a central bank, the RBI, that obviously regulates a large part of the finance industry. You've got uh, SEBI, which is the capital markets regulator. You've got the Ministry of Finance. So while I would not go into specifics because every company and every portfolio company would come with its own challenges, I think by and large, uh, as, as a broader brush, I think we need to create a better understanding of fintech and financial services led by technology for our regulators. Because I think innovation is happening at such a fast pace right now that it's almost impossible for regulators to play catch up and to come up with policies where they understand. Let me, for instance, give you one example of a classic public policy pain point where what you simply need is that balancing act. The Indian regulator, the RBI, has come up with a policy where they rightly have concerns around merchants as well as uh, payment companies storing credit card information. Now, as a regulator, it's their job to make sure that our financial system is safe and that they're putting in place necessary safeguards in the interests of consumers. Now, what this presents itself with is a tough opportunity where, uh, you know, if you do not allow merchants to store credit card data, each time you and I, for instance, have mm-hmm. to uh, go ahead and make a payment on any platform, be it an OTT platform or an e-commerce site, we have to enter our credit card data each time. Now, it's a classic case where we understand that there are concerns that regulators have and we understand that there are concerns the industry has because anything that doesn't make a regulation user friendly and hurts, uh, you know, the user experience for customers will be a pain point for industry. At the same time, regulators want you to come up with solutions that solve for their concerns and yet do not hurt innovation. So there are active conversations going on and it's exactly classic problems like these or, for instance, data localization, which has been a big pain point in India as well, where we understand that, you know, regulators and policymakers want data localized for national interest reasons, for, for plenty of other reasons. But at the same time, there are clear concerns in the way data localization policies are being implemented that do not serve the interests of the industry in the sense that it hurts innovation, it hurts compliance, it, it has regulatory issues. So I think uh, while, while not talking about any specific company or specific issue, I can say The fintech industry is one industry where there is plenty of public policy work to be done, where we can bring the two stakeholders together, which is regulators and policymakers, as well as the industry, and help resolve some of these issues. That's great, Shweta. And I want to pick up on on one of the issues you just alluded to or or mentioned, data localization, and kind of expand on that in one sense. Obviously, for many foreign tech companies, data localization has been a 
top issue of concern with the Indian government. And you've raised it, I think, if I'm hearing you correctly, a bit more from the perspective of, you know, portfolio Indian tech companies, whether they're startups or mid-stage or late-stage. I'd like to bring in the dimension of foreign tech companies here. I mean, you worked for Salesforce, you ha- you worked for Uber, two very marquee foreign tech companies in India. So you've got both of these perspectives. And as you know, it's been, um, in some respects, a very challenging environment for foreign tech. And I saw just last week, the Indian commerce minister kind of effectively suggested that some foreign e-commerce companies may need to consider quitting India. So help me, let's talk a little bit about this dimension of foreign tech and growing the Indian tech sector. How do you square the vigor, the intensity, and the growth and innovation in tech with this dimension of challenges that some of the very large tech companies that have tried to enter the Indian market have faced? Well, it is a very, very interesting as well as challenging time for tech policy because uh, it is not just in India, Rex, and we're seeing these questions being asked around the world. There are obvious concerns that governments have, whether it's in terms of interest that we may term nationalist or interest that we may term in national interest or concerns around a clear distrust that has developed between foreign tech as well as governments around the world, or I would say large tech and big tech and governments around the world. So it's not a problem that's unique to India. There are governments around the world that are grappling with these challenges. And in many ways, it is, it's very important that the industry helps them understand why some of these policies can be challenging and why they may not be in the interest of, of the country. So I think a lot of the data localization policies come in the backdrop of the understanding and the so-called I would say, misplaced narrative that has developed around data being the new oil. And while that mm-hmm. phrase was used rightly so in trying to trying to reaffirm the importance of data in, in a globalized world and how, how important and significant data is, in many ways, it's been misinterpreted as treating data like oil and regulating data like, say, the large oil producing economies have dealt with oil. And that has led to a lot of questions around how data needs to be treated. Now, I would say there are legitimate concerns that governments have around data flows, and those concerns need to be addressed. They need to be addressed by the industry as well. But how far out do you go to make sure that policies that are being put in place are sensible enough that they do not in turn hurt consumers, the industry, as well as the country is a question of policy making, And that's exactly a question that I think for many years now is being addressed by way of a large data privacy bill that's still in the making in India and has been in the making for many years. And I think a lot of these questions are going to come up when we try and address, you know, data localization as part of the overarching data privacy policy that India will come up with. And to me, the, the right answer to a good policy lies in a very simple test. Is the policy sensible enough that it will be in the interests of the end consumer? Any policy that seems too self-serving for industry or uh, too, too regressive that it hurts industry and in turn consumers is not a good policy. And I think as long as we can apply that, that litmus test to any policy, whether it's data localization or any other policy that governments are working on, a lot of it around tech companies, we're going to arrive at the right answers. And it will be a bit of pain before we go through that process where, where all sides 
feel that this is a win-win for everybody. So we are in that in that phase right now, Rexon, in many ways where we are seeing that stress in the system, where we are seeing that evolution. But this is an inflection point. And once we arrive at sensible policies, once we arrive at policies where there will be a balance between regulation, uh, between national interests, as well as innovation and uh, uh, pro-consumer policies, we will we would have probably set the stage uh, for uh, very, very sensible tech policies that will guide the sector for many, many decades. If you were advising a major U.S. tech company that was intersecting with, for example, the challenges on data localization that exist today, would there be any perspective on your part to advise the CEO, look, now we just need to push pause, wait, or pull back from India? It's just not worth it. Well, I don't think that would ever be a time where we would say it's not worth it. India is a, is a complicated market. Policymaking in India is complex. And uh, I, I don't think anybody would ever give up on a market that is absolutely so exciting, so fascinating, and has huge potential of, for growth for uh, you know, tech companies, especially given what we're seeing happen geopolitically right now, as well as, uh, you know, the kind of pain points we're seeing in certain countries. I think India is the hotbed uh, for large tech companies to grow. And there will be that inherent st- stress that you're going to see around policymaking. And as I said, it's not unique to India. It is it is mm-hmm. a challenge that we're seeing around the world. To your specific question around the advice on uh, related to data localization, I think uh, we have to continue the dialogue. We have to continue the engagement. And I don't think you can give up. Because at at some point, you need to realize that policymakers, regulators, government stakeholders are here to possibly protect their interests, protect the, by their interests, I mean interests that they have been tasked to to handle, which is national interests, which is interests of consumers, as well as balance that with policies that are pro-industry, as well as policies that are pro-consumer. As we arrive at that, and very often there will be stress, there will be tension, we need to continue the dialogue. And I think the one thing that we can continue asking government stakeholders very actively as public policy professionals is to continue the dialogue and to continue engaging is to continue listening to industry because there is absolutely no going back from that. It is very important that as long as the dialogue is open, the channels of communication are open, we will continue to press on issues and help understand. I also think that as policy professionals, we need to do a better job of helping governments build that trust that a lot of what we're talking about as sensible policies are not always self-serving. Because that is where the trust deficit comes in, Rexon. Because very often, American tech or large tech or big tech or a foreign tech, if I were to say it, is seen as self-serving. And how do you Mm -hmm. help understand that very often policies that you're trying to push for are not necessarily policies that are only good for certain countries or for certain companies, but they may be good for the the countries in which, uh, you know, these companies are operating in. So I think that kind of education can only come with consistent dialogue, uh, with a lot of persistence, a lot of perseverance in continuing to engage and I think we're not, we're at least at a point where the engagement continues to happen. Shweta, last year, Sequoia India announced two new funds, collectively just about $1.35 billion, a $500 million venture fund and an over $800 million growth fund. And and as I was you know, getting uh, preparing for our conversation here today, I, I was reading about this and I was struck by a couple comments that I saw in the announcement, and, I, and I'd love to hear 
your perspective here. And what your colleagues said at the time in announcing these funds were that startups in the South Asia region and India have struggled to grow rapidly with good unit economics, preventing very large profitable technology businesses in our region from emerging. And to add to these challenges, startups in India do not have the benefit of the regulatory framework that allows listing on foreign exchanges like NASDAQ. And, you know, thinking about Sequoia India, you've been in the market for 15 years. And as you mentioned at the top, you've partnered with some companies from from founding all the way to IPO and to the unicorn stage, not just in India, but in Southeast Asia. But I'd love for you to comment on the challenges that were identified in that passage I read in terms of scaling up the regulatory framework to go public and to, you know, within India and then to go global, as you mentioned, that this is India going global. Talk to us a little more about that, how you see those challenges and you know, where does it go from here? Absolutely, Rex, and I can I can speak specifically about uh, what you've mentioned, and which is allowing Indian startups to list on overseas exchanges. In fact, uh, uh, you know this has been one of my top policy priorities after I took over, and we've been engaging very actively with the government, uh, trying to help policymakers understand why this is so crucial for companies that are reaching a certain stage of maturity to have the flexibility to choose where they'd like to list. And I think uh, it's even more important today at a time when we're seeing so much exuberance in the Indian capital markets where we're seeing, uh, you know, tech companies uh, like Zomato listing in India, getting a blockbuster Mm -hmm. welcome on Indian stock exchanges, fantastic valuations, fantastic welcome. But at the same time, uh, we do believe that there is a certain class of companies and there are certain category of companies that would be better served by allowing them to, uh, to list on overseas exchanges to tap global liquidity that is so flush right now. And the reason why we believe that is because uh, it is exactly the opportunity that many counterparts uh, of startups in India have in other countries. So when when there are other countries that allow the option to list on overseas exchanges, why is it that Indian companies that have, that come with so much entrepreneurial zeal, that have so much scope for growth and uh, can achieve the kind of status that we've seen large tech companies globally achieve are not given that opportunity. And which is the reason why not just, uh, not just Sequoia in India, but uh, the entire VC ecosystem, as well as many Indian mm-hmm. founders have been pressing the government to go ahead and pass those rules that allow uh, you know, companies to list directly overseas. In fact, as recently as a few weeks ago, uh, you know, nearly 12 uh, Indian founders along with uh, 10, uh, you know, venture capital firms and investment advisors wrote a letter to the prime minister urging him uh, to expedite these rules. And I think the reasoning is quite clear. You know, while India's, you know, capital markets are getting very mature and seem to be, uh, you know, reaching that stage, we believe certain categories of companies, for instance, SaaS, for instance, B2B logistics will be better served by markets where there is greater maturity in understanding those business models and uh, will will attract much more liquidity as well as much more, I would say, strength in in those markets. And I think uh, the government is seized of this as well. And we've seen great uh, traction for this policy and commitment coming from policymakers. I think we're close to resolving this and, and we've got the finance minister on record saying that we're very close to announcing this policy after mm. a few issues are resolved. But I think that would be a game changer for the Indian startup ecosystem. Rex, and if we want to see Indian startups achieving true global status, 
putting India on the global map as far as technology is concerned, this will be that moment. And I think the government realizes that it requires, you know, expediting those rules to allow the Indian startup ecosystem to seize that moment. Shweta, how optimistic are you that we can get to the right decisions by the Indian government this year? Very optimistic, Rexon, because I think the government realizes that in the backdrop of the pandemic, uh, there is a lot of focus that will now come on growth, on innovation, on reforms, and an unfinished reform agenda that the government has. I've talked about what the unfinished reform agenda is as far as the startup ecosystem is concerned, mm-hmm. and this clearly remains one, which is allowing Indian startups to list directly overseas, which we believe will put India on the global map. But I think this government realizes that uh, it does need to press the pedal now on some of these reforms forms that would come in the in the in the overall agenda that the government had laid down i do think there will be a lot of focus on startups because while this government has already uh, been very very focused on making startups successful there is a realization now coming through that startups will be the ones that will make india the global powerhouse and and you know just look at what we've seen happen in the first half of this year 2021 has seen 20 billion dollars plus of uh, funding going to right. india startups you know just about uh, you know a decade ago you had probably one or two indian unicorns today we're talking about the unicorn club being a 50 plus unicorn club more than 50 companies that have achieved unicorn status and remember of these i think only 22 have achieved the unicorn status in 2021 alone this year alone mm-hmm. we've seen 20 plus companies uh, you know achieve the unicorn status that in many ways speaks to where that growth is coming from where the job creation opportunities are coming from where the livelihood creation is coming from and it's all in the startup ecosystem it's all in the tech led startup ecosystem and the government is aware of this and that's why we believe that there will be true tremendous support being given to the startup ecosystem by the government. Shweta, you and I were talking about as we first joined to to do this podcast, the the tragic dimensions of COVID, um, which are hard to escape. But I think you're touching on something on, on a dimension here, at least in terms of innovation, particularly in the digital and technology space, that I think you can draw a line to the consequences of what life is like now in the pandemic. But unpack that just a little more for us, if you will, how the pandemic has in some ways been an accelerant for innovation and in what respects and in which sectors do you think that will manifest most explicitly as we look to the next 6, 12, 18 months? Well, absolutely, Rex. And I think if we look at the pandemic and its impact, particularly on the tech sector, yes, there are sectors that have been particularly badly hit. And and those are obvious ones. When you look at, say, travel, when you look at hospitality, those are sectors that have that have in many ways uh, had have felt the brunt of the pandemic. But then there have been obvious sectors that have actually benefited from the, the so-called large-scale digital adoption that got accelerated because of the pandemic. And that's a very, very obvious trend that we're seeing. And, and I think in many ways, for instance, let me take the example of EdTech. As famous as the mm-hmm. saying goes that there are uh, decades when nothing happens and then there are weeks when decades happen. And that's exactly what has happened uh, to the EdTech sector, within weeks, you saw, you know, mass adoption of uh, EdTech as a technology, you know, millions and millions of, of children uh, suddenly, you know, schooling online and, and the acceptance 
students that you know what you can you can continue learning online you can achieve learning outcomes online and i think this sector and, and some say that what what demonetization in india did to the to the fintech sector the the pandemic covid has done to the edtech sector and i think when we look at some of the data coming from uh, the edtech companies that we've partnered with what i find even more fascinating as a trend is that this is not just uh, something which is limited to the metros or to the tier 1 cities or to the urban centers we're seeing large scale adoption across india across cities across towns and villages that one would have never imagined and this is all coming on the back of tremendous you know internet penetration uh, the access to mobile and all of that which are trends that are here to stay and trends that will only accelerate as as time comes so yes uh, covid for some sectors has given that necessary you know push has accelerated the growth rate and and these are sectors that will now having got that necessary fuel and energy because of the pandemic will only see uh, unparalleled growth and and to follow up in the edtech space on this topic are you seeing an acceleration in partnership with us entities whether it's colleges universities or or otherwise i mean the, the united states has perhaps one of the most diverse education systems in the world and this explosion that you describe in india would seem to be an area ripe for natural and expanded partnership but what are you seeing Well it is absolutely fascinating Rexon to see the kind of partnerships the kind of growth that we're seeing these edtech companies uh, now uh, sort of uh, engage in so for instance there are companies that are simply expanding and taking their footprint global and and the United States as you mentioned is a hotbed where uh, a lot where there is so much appetite for the kind of innovation that India's edtech system is bringing with it for instance you know uh, the, the teachers that we have here in India it suddenly doesn't matter where you teaching from because the teachers could be sitting here anywhere in india and teaching students in the us and 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 the kind of quality as well as the kind of skilling that indian teachers have we're able to deliver world class content world class education to students around the world and that's what many of our edtech companies are doing then there are companies like eruditors that have entered into partnerships with universities around the world and and are helping deliver the kind of world class education we see in 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 those universities to uh, students as well as helping in upskilling a tremendous number of people here so it is a two way partnership that we're seeing it's a two way growth that we're seeing but it's also a trend that will only accelerate because on one hand there is a need for indian companies that have the kind of talent that they are hiring in, in terms of educators in terms of teachers uh, to be able to deliver that education to students as well as learners around the world and on the other hand bringing some of that uh, that you know education from around the world to india so so the two way expansion is very much real shweta as we wrap up i want to ask you a question on a final topic a little more than a month ago or a, sorry a less than a month ago Sequoia India announced a new initiative the Spark Fellowship um intended to try to promote gender diversity and inclusion and I was struck by a a fact I saw in your announcement which is not dissimilar from I think challenges that have been written about extensively here in the United States in our tech sector but that just 12% of venture backed startups in India and only 20% in ASEAN have at least one female founder so i'd love to hear your perspective on 
you know, what makes you optimistic about addressing this issue going forward and where you see a public policy dimension here that might help improve this balance? Well, absolutely. It's a subject uh, that uh, I think uh, everyone believes in very deeply and, and which is the reason and the whole principle and philosophy behind the Sequoia Spark announcement that you're talking about, $100,000 uh, of a grant to 15 women-led startups is a commitment that Sequoia is making year on year for the India-Southeast Asia region. And that really is, we believe, in some ways, a small part towards changing that statistic that you just talked about. Obviously, the data and the statistic is not pretty. And uh, we, we understand that and we feel that it is our moral obligation as leaders in the ecosystem to do our part to help change that. That part, I think, we bring with us a wealth of tribal knowledge as well as access and, and a lot of surveys and studies that have been done to understand why we're not seeing anything moving as far as that statistic is concerned tells us that what women founders really need is access to mentorship. They need access mm. to networking. They need understanding of, of this ecosystem. And we believe that it's not just the check, but what's more important is helping them get that access that will make them successful. And, and that's exactly what uh, we are committed to with the Sequoia Spark program. And, uh, you know, this, this will come with a lot of uh, handholding, mentorship, as well as guidance in company building that we believe will be a lot more uh, value add for these women founders and will help them in becoming successful. As far as the public policy angle and dimension to this is concerned, I think it's, it's also very heartening and reassuring that the government is equally committed to this cause. And we see the Niti Aayog, which is the government's economic um, you know, policy think tank that also has a women entrepreneurship platform or web, as they call it, to promote women entrepreneurship. And we're very happy and proud that uh, we have entered into a collaboration with web where we'll be working very closely uh, with the government uh, in helping accelerate the trend and in promoting women entrepreneurship. That apart, I want to also very quickly mention that I think uh, it's also important that while we continue to press the accelerator in trying to get more and more women founders to start up and to be successful. We also believe that many of our companies are doing tremendous work when it comes to gender diversity, whether it is in terms of, you know, companies that are, uh, that are uh, you know, recruiting more women, whether it is in companies that are working towards women's safety, or it is companies mm -hmm. like, for instance, I'd like to talk about Misho, one of our portfolio companies that has today, uh, you know, more than seven to eight million women micro entrepreneurs on its platform. So they are, these are companies that are changing the lives of women. And it doesn't matter if they're companies that are founded by men or led by men, but they are doing their bit uh, to promote uh, inclusion as well as diversity for the entire ecosystem. Shweta, thanks. I take heart in those last observations that you know, the next time we get together, uh, hopefully those statistics may have started to shift a little bit. We've covered a lot of ground in our conversation today. I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for the insights you've shared. And I just want to thank you, Shweta, for, for taking the time to join us today. Very much appreciate it. Thank you so much, Rexon. Thank you, Rexon. It was a pleasure to be on the show. And I want to thank our listeners. Please be sure to rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also access the full video of our conversation at theasiagroup.com. We'll see you next time on Tea Leaves.